homeless is tough because it's hard to get work without an address and a phone number. I've even tried to find work under the table doing dishes and that sort of thing for cash and haven't had any luck. Um, sometimes you feel like you're invisible to people, like you can say hello to somebody and they'll just walk right by like you don't even exist. Staying in different places, you have to be careful where you stay. So I hang around, you know, the sheriff's department, police, I mean the fire department, and uh, they let people sleep there, and they don't bother them saying, hey, you got to get up and leave and go somewhere else. And, uh, you know, you can stay to a certain amount of time, and then you get up and you leave, you pack your stuff, and then you go on your way. And uh, that's what I've been doing for the last uh, six weeks. And basically, I defected from society. But the more I try to get away, the more I find out I need you. Man, I've been staying on the boardwalk, man, for like the last 10 years down here alone. Snowbirded it. And concrete ain't getting any softer. I was molested when I was a child. Immediately I started smoking marijuana to ease the pain or whatever. And developed into alcohol, finally heroin. Okay. When I hit about 20, I finally said, no, I'm not gonna do any more drugs. However, the alcohol is what's keeping me homeless, keeping me on the street. I don't work, I panhandle for beer money. But uh, I've done a lot of penitentiary time, you know, because of my rampant drug abuse, you know. Uh, I've got four kids that I don't even talk to or see or nothing, you know. My home's wherever I can find a place to lie down, wherever it looks safe and dry, and wherever I get tired is where I make my home. Come down for such a sinner as I Sometimes you feel like you're invisible to people. Like you can say hello to somebody and they'll just walk right by like you don't even exist. I'm asking the question today, do we see these kinds of needs in our society? Do we see these kinds of people who are desperate and who are in need of help? Are we a community of Christians who are seeking to go out and to help those in need? Or are we more apt to overlook and neglect meeting the physical, social, and spiritual needs around us? I'm asking the question, are we pretending not to see? Are we pretending not to see these kinds of people? Today in our study of Mark, we're continuing in, our, in the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to be looking at three stories, three vignettes 
in which Jesus provides spiritual and physical care for the people around him. But the people to whom Jesus ministers to in these three stories in Mark are unlike most of the stories we read in the Gospels. You see, in these three stories, Jesus is meeting the needs of Gentiles. In these three stories, Jesus is meeting the spiritual and physical needs of non-Jewish people. He is meeting the needs of those the Israelites pretended not to see. You see, the Jewish people of the first century really despised their Gentile neighbors. You might say they were routinely uh, racist and prejudiced toward them. Uh, They likened them to dogs and not to human beings created in God's image. The thought of befriending a needy Gentile or helping one in need was not commonplace to Israel. They pretended not to see them. And in each of the three stories we are going to look at today, we will see Jesus attacking this racism, attacking this prejudice. In our study in Mark, Jesus is going to see and meet the needs of a group of people the Israelites would rather not see. Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 24. Again, I said we're going to be looking at three stories, and we're going to look at them rather briefly, although with the exception of the first. The first we're going to focus a little bit more time on, because it sets the stage for the other two. And so as we go through these vignettes, we're going to focus on the first and move a little more quickly through the latter two, but we'll begin to see the big picture Jesus has in mind as He interacts with the Gentile people. Take a look at Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 24. We're not going to read through the whole stories uh, at one time. We're going to approach them little by little. Mark 7, verse 24. It says, From there Jesus arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And He entered a house and wanted no one to know it. But He could not be hidden. For a woman whose, whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about Jesus and she came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. You know, before we dig too far into this story, I want to remind us of, of where we've come from. Because where we've come from is critical in understanding where we are. Where we've come from in the last studies in Mark is is essential to understand this story. Without knowledge of the previous story, we cannot understand what's going on here. And in our studies in the last couple of Sundays, we've looked at tradition and law, clean and unclean, food laws, all sorts of things that related to the Jewish worshiper. Last Sunday, in particular, we saw Jesus doing something very drastic. In one brief statement, in Mark 7.15, Jesus negated the Mosaic food laws. In one brief statement, in Mark 7.15, Jesus took 1,500 years of law 
and negated it and said, we're done with it. Why did Jesus do this? Why did Jesus negate the food loss? I want to give two answers. The first answer is one you're going to be familiar with because we talked about it last week. The second answer is going to pertain to today. The first reason that Jesus negated the food laws is that the details of the food laws were being idolized while their intent was being ignored. This made the food laws useless. And as Jesus negated the food laws, He was actually also simultaneously offering a new covenant, a new law himself by which Israel could become holy again. You see, the food laws were given that Israel could be holy, could be separate, could be set apart from the pagan nations around her and the pagan customs and rituals around her. But they idolized the law and not the intent. They idolized the details and not the lawgiver. And so Jesus said, we're done with this. I'm instituting a new law, a new covenant. That covenant's going to be myself. Faith in me will now bring holiness to the people of Israel. But there's a second reason why Jesus negated the food laws. And this second reason I left out last week intentionally because I wanted to bring it out today. The second reason why Jesus negated the food laws is this. The food laws kept Israel separated from her pagan neighbors By negating the food laws, Jesus was declaring that God's salvation plan now included both Jews and Gentiles. You see, when the food laws were given, it was meant to separate them from evil. But instead, when the food laws were given over time, it didn't just separate them from evil from their pagan counterparts. It actually separated them physically, socially, relationally. The Jews wanted nothing to do with them. And Jesus says, that wasn't my intent. My intent is not that you be isolated, excluded from all nations. No, Israel is to be a light unto the Gentiles, as so often is mentioned in the book of Isaiah. Jesus, of course, fulfilled that light. But Israel had been given that responsibility to be a light to the Gentiles. And they had squandered it. And so by negating the food laws, Jesus was declaring, no longer do I want you to be separated socially, relationally, physically from the Gentile people. Now I want you to interact with them. Now I want you to share with them. Now I want God's salvation to be with them as it is with you. This second reason is why Mark is going to focus our attention on the Gentiles. This second reason is why now in verse 24 of Mark, you see a shift. You see a shift in the Gospel. All of a sudden, all of this ministry toward the Jewish people, with the exception of a few random instances, all of a sudden, it's going to be stopped and a new section is going to begin for the next three stories at least in which the Gentile people receive God's attention. It isn't mere coincidence that directly following Jesus' negation of the food laws, Mark goes on to record three consecutive vignettes 
about Jesus' interaction with Gentiles, beginning with our story today, the Syrophoenician woman. Ben Witherington, a great scholar, says this about this story as we're about to dig into it. He says, Mark uses the clean, unclean discussion of the food laws as the introduction and in effect the explanation for Jesus' willingness to help even a non-Jewish woman as recorded in verses 24 to 30. Look again at verses 24 to 26. It says, From there Jesus arose, went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. He entered a house... And wanted no one to know it, but he could not be hidden. For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about Jesus and she came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she kept asking Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter. Okay, Jesus has left the Jewish region, right? Let's bring up a map here and see where we're at. Where are we on this scale? Jesus has left Gennesaret on the northwest uh, corner of the Sea of Galilee, and he's gone to Tyre, the region of Tyre, I should say. He's gone to the region of Tyre and Sidon, which is outside the territory of the Jews. Okay? Gentile territory, pagan territory. Later on in our, in our stories that we're going to read, we're going to see Jesus taking a roundabout way back on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, to a region called Decapolis. Now, Jesus intentionally stays outside of Israel, and He goes around the territory of Israel and comes to the region of Decapolis, which is also a Gentile region, non-Jewish region. And these are the environments, this is the atmosphere, the, the region, if you will, of where Jesus is ministering right now. So He's very intentionally, He's left Israel, and He's ministering now, to Gentile peoples. Back to our text. Back to our text. <clears throat> now, Jesus was perhaps looking to get some rest and relaxation, it says, right? In verse uh, 24, he wanted to get away, but he couldn't be hidden. It says, Jesus entered a house and wanted no one to know it, but he could not be hidden. Matthew's account of the story tells us that the disciples were with him. So we can, we can expect that. Whose home was this? Whose home was this? We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But the fact that a Gentile woman enters this home indicates that it is very likely a Gentile home. We're in a Gentile region outside the boundaries of Israel. Did Jews live outside the boundaries? Yes, they did. But the likelihood of this is that Jesus and His disciples have entered a Gentile's home. A non-Jewish home. Now, this point might not mean much to you and to me with our, our, our Western first, uh, 21st century ears. But I assure you, entering a Gentile home for Jesus and His disciples was no small thing. Entering a home of a Gentile would have been a very uncomfortable um, a very, a very on-edge kind of thing to do for a Jewish man. The disciples, no less, as they were following Jesus to this region, and Jesus is knocking on a door and asking if he can take up residence there and dine there. And the person welcomes them in, and the disciples are following behind. And you better believe 
they are extremely uncomfortable in their environment. They're not comfortable with their host. They're not comfortable with the home. They feel like they shouldn't be there. They feel unclean. This doesn't feel right, Jesus. And while they eat together in the home, a Gentile woman enters the home, falls at Jesus' feet, and begs Him to cast out the demon who is afflicting her daughter. Now, what little comfort, the small amount of comfort the disciples might have had left in them, at this moment in time, was completely eradicated. Not only were they residing and dining in the, in the home of an unclean Gentile, but an unclean woman had now entered the room speaking about her unclean daughter who had an unclean spirit afflicting her. It's a very dirty situation. I assure you, right now, right here, the disciples are absolutely, positively out of their comfort level. Their comfort bubble has been burst and they are not happy about it. Matthew's account, we're not going to turn there, but Matthew's account says, at this moment in time, when the woman came before Jesus, the disciples rose up and went over to Jesus and shouted, send this woman away, for she cries out after us. They wanted her to leave. They wanted her to go. Send her away. For she cries out after us. Jesus' disciples were doing nothing more than what the common Jew would have done. They were ignoring and disregarding a Gentile in their midst. They were pretending not to see her. The disciples saw this woman as the same light, in the same light as all Israel saw the Gentiles. She was nothing to them. She was an afterthought. She was less than human. She was a Gentile, and Gentiles were nothing more than dogs. And that's precisely what Jesus called her. You say, what? Did I hear you correctly? Yes, you did. She was a Gentile, and Gentiles were nothing more than dogs. And that's precisely what Jesus called her. Look at verse 27. But Jesus said to her, Let the children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and to throw it to the little dogs. Now, Undoubtedly, a lot of questions are going through our minds right now. R.T. France says this about the this reference to dogs. He says, Dogs were regarded by the Jews and probably equally by their Semitic neighbors as unclean animals. To refer to a human being as a dog is deliberately offensive or dismissive. Jews typically referred to Gentiles as dogs. It is the sort of language a Gentile might expect from a Jew, but to find it in a saying of Jesus is shocking. This is well said. 
Are we then suggesting that Jesus is being racist here in verse 27? Are we then concluding that Jesus is being prejudiced in verse 27? Is Jesus' statement filled with bigotry? I want to answer very clearly. No. No. Well, on the surface, on the surface, a casual reading, Jesus' statement can very, very easily be taken as a racial slur. A closer look at the story will reveal nothing of the sort. In fact, Jerry Camry Hogat says this about this particular verse. He says, to read only what lies on the surface of verse 27 is to misread it. It is instead to be read as a bit of tongue-in-cheek, a form of verbal challenge intended to test the other's response. It may, in fact, declare the opposite of Jesus' actual intention. And in fact, I might amend that last statement to say it does, in fact, declare the opposite of Jesus' actual intention. Folks, Jesus is not making a racist statement here. He's not being prejudiced. He's not being bigoted. While Jesus' words in verse 27 are spoken to the woman, they are directed at His disciples. Let me say that again. While Jesus' words in verse 27 are spoken to the woman, they are directed at His disciples. And that is how we need to approach verse 27. Jesus wants His disciples to vividly, physically, orally hear their bigotry, their hatred, their revulsion toward this woman and all that she represents. Jesus put words in verse 27 to the wicked thoughts in the disciples' hearts. Make no mistake about it. While Jesus' words are spoken to the woman, they are directed at His disciples. They are meant to correct a fundamental problem in their soul. Namely, that they believe Gentiles to be less than human. To be like little dogs. When Jesus speaks of letting the little children be fed first. He is, of course, referring to the Jewish people. And also, namely, His disciples. In the face of her request to heal her demon-afflicted daughter, it's as if Jesus is saying, the Jews must be taken care of first. It wouldn't be proper to neglect Israel for the sake of worthless Gentiles, would it? When Jesus says, let the little children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. What he means is, the Jews must be taken care of first. It wouldn't be proper to neglect Israel for the sake of worthless Gentiles, would it? He's throwing out a challenge. He's throwing out an offer to her to respond to a statement 
which Jesus Christ Himself is wanting her to negate. He's throwing her a bone here, if you will. No pun intended. And she answers the call well. Notice verse 28. Verse 28, And she answered and said to Him, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. Notice, this woman, she doesn't argue with Jesus' choice of words about her social and ethnic background. She accepts the bigotry of Israel. She accepts the bigotry of Jesus' disciples. And she still seeks her daughter's release from affliction. This is a woman in desperation, willing to incur hatred and vilification just to see her daughter healed. This woman is laying down her life, if you will, for the life of her daughter. A pagan, unclean, Gentile woman is doing now what the disciples will soon see Jesus do on the cross of Calvary. Incurring vilification, hatred for the sake of others. For the sake of her daughter. And she says, yes, Lord. Yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. That is to say, yes, Lord. But even we worthless Gentiles wait patiently behind Israel for God's blessing, mercy, and healing to come. And so I wait patiently for you to heal my daughter. Upon hearing these desperate words from a mother willing to do anything for her daughter's life, I have great suspicion that the disciples shrunk back in shame. They were racist toward her. They were prejudiced toward her. They were bigoted toward her. Pretending not to see her. That she was worthless a dog. Jesus put words to their thoughts. He let them hear audibly what they were contemplating inwardly. And when they did, and when they heard her response, accepting the hatred, accepting the vilification, accepting her substandard level of existence, undoubtedly, these twelve men shrunk back in shame. They were ashamed at the thought of their heart. And they saw in this woman a mother willing to do anything for her daughter. Verse 29. Then Jesus said to her, For this saying, for this saying, go your way. The demon has gone out of your daughter. And when she had come to her house, she found the demon gone out and her daughter lying on the bed. Folks, Jesus was all too happy, all too happy to see this woman's great faith. He wanted her to respond with strength. 
He wanted her to respond with vigor and to put to shame the hostility of the disciples. And when she did, Jesus was all too happy to grant her request. And with his very word, he cast out the demon from her daughter in a far-off home. Once again, R.T. Francis' words here are, are wonderful at encapsulating what we have just understood and read. Notice what he says. He says, Jesus functions as what in a different context might be called devil's advocate. And is not disappointed. Jesus is not disappointed to be defeated in argument. The reader, we, are left more vividly aware of the reality of the problem of Jew-Gentile relations and of the importance of the step Jesus here takes to overcome it. The woman's victory in the debate is a decisive watershed. The whole future course of Christian movement is set not on the basis of Jewish exclusivism, but of sharing the children's bread. Bread here is an image for the blessings of the Messiah's ministry. It's well said. It's well said. I would contend that bread here is is more than just a general blessing, but rather really a a life-giving sustenance. You are receiving life when you receive the crumbs off Israel's table. Crumbs of the Messiah. The disciples pretended not to see this woman's need. They pretended not to see her. But Jesus made it unequivocally clear that now the kingdom of God was being extended to all people, Jew and Gentile. To our second vignette. We're going to move a little quickly on these last latter two and then come to some conclusions. Notice verse 31. It says, and again, Departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, Jesus came to the midst of the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. Verse 32, Then they brought to Him one who was deaf and had an impediment in His speech. And they begged Him to put put His hand on Him. Decapolis, on the east side and the southeast side of the Sea of Galilee, was a district... Of ten cities, Deca, Polis, ten cities, chiefly inhabited by Gentiles. Chiefly inhabited by Gentiles. Jesus had already been to this region before. You may recall in Mark chapter 5, Jesus is in the region of the Gadarenes, and he heals a man possessed by a demon. Tom Bennett had an excellent sermon on that in Mark 5, 1 to 20. I encourage you to go listen to that sermon, it was a great message. And so Jesus had been here in this region before. And the people, and it says in Mark 5, in the latter part of that story, that they went out and they they, they told about what Jesus had done. So no doubt word is getting around about Jesus' fame. It says in verse 32, Then they brought to Jesus one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to put his hand on him. We know what deaf means. It means you cannot hear. The impediment of speech was perhaps a stutter. Um, 
We can't be 100% certain. But folks, the evidence is pretty much overwhelming that this man is a Gentile. And it doesn't say he was a Gentile. And that's why I'm saying clearly, I I can't be 100% sure. But he's in a Gentile region. Jesus has just finished with the Syrophoenician woman. We're moving in a different direction in the Gospels. And in this Gentile region, it's very likely that this man is a Gentile. And so the story goes, as Jesus has extended the kingdom of God to a Gentile woman and to her unclean daughter, no less, now He is taking that kingdom and He is extending it and offering it to a deaf, mute Gentile, to yet another unclean man. As Jesus interacts with this man, we are not venturing too far to say that this Gentile man's inability to hear and to speak are not meant to be symbols of the Gentile's inability to hear and understand the kingdom of God. Much more is happening in this story than a simple miracle. Notice verse 33. 33 to the end of this story. And Jesus took him aside from the multitude and put his finger, fingers in his ears and he spat and touched his tongue. Then Jesus looked up to heaven. He sighed. He groaned. And he said to him, Ephaphtha, be opened. Immediately, his ears were opened and the impediment of his tongue was loosed. And he spoke plainly. Then Jesus commanded them that they should tell no one, but the more He commanded it, the more they widely proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. In this act, in this act, folks, of healing the deaf, mute, Gentile man, Jesus was opening the spiritual ears of those in far-off lands. The Gentile people, a group who had no claim on God's blessing, a group who had no claim on the God of Israel, are now seeing, are now seen in verse 36 as proclaiming speech. That of speech is now gone. Are seen proclaiming the miracle of Jesus Christ are seen proclaiming the kingdom which has just entered their midst as a result of Jesus' healing of the deaf-mute Gentile man. And they were astonished beyond measure, it says. He has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Jesus was now seeing and meeting the needs of a people group that Israel pretended not to see. Our final story. Chapter 8, verse 1. 1 to 3. In those days, the multitude, being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called His disciples to them and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with Me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their own homes, they will faint on the way, for some of them have come from afar. Now, this isn't the first time we may have heard this kind of a story. We'll get to that in just a moment. 
How does this story fit into Gentile inclusion in the kingdom of God? Well, this second miraculous feeding story immediately follows two stories which we've already looked at. The healing of the Gentile woman's daughter afflicted by a demon. The kingdom of God brought to this woman and her daughter. The healing of a deaf-mute Gentile man. The kingdom of God brought so that they could hear and go on to proclaim what God had done for them. And here, the multitudes. Who are these multitudes? Undoubtedly. Undoubtedly. They are the multitudes that have come as a result of what Jesus has done. Jesus has not left the region. Jesus has remained in Decapolis. He is in the wilderness in Decapolis with thousands by now of Gentile peoples who have gathered together with Him and they're following Him and they're learning from Him and they're hearing from Him and they're receiving healing from Him. This is a Gentile feeding. No question. Verse 4, to the end of the story. Then His disciples answered Him, How can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? And Jesus asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. So He commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground and He took the seven loaves, gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to His disciples to set before them. And they set them before the multitude. They also had a few small fish and having blessed them, He said, to set them also before them. So they ate and were filled. And they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. Now those who had eaten were about 4,000. In Mark 6, we saw the story of the feeding of the 5,000. They were 5,000 Jewish men in a Jewish region. The kingdom of God being extended to the Jewish people as was the tradition of the Old Testament. But in Mark 8, we're seeing something radically different. Oh, it's a feeding miracle, all right. It looks like the same story as Mark 6, but the audience is different. In this case, the audience are the ones the Jews pretended not to see. Here we have the feeding of the 4,000 Gentile men and undoubtedly women and children with them. We could go into the differences between the two stories. We could go into the similarities and, and, and what they look, how they look similar and how they look different. But the greater point of the story is this, folks. There's no greater point than this. The kingdom of God is no longer being reserved for the people of Israel. The Messiah has come and has brought with Him both physical and spiritual sustenance symbolized by the bread. And the bread that Jesus offers is no longer meant only for the Jew, but is now being given to people of all tongues, tribes, and nations, even to those we pretend not to see. France says this, he says, the feeding narrative thus fills out, I would say completes. The feeding narrative completes Jesus' discussion with the Syrophoenician woman about allowing the dogs a share in the children's bread. And in this incident, the feeding, 
The bread is quite literally shared. Man, I love this guy. I've been just soaking up his, his study in the Gospel of Mark. Got to get this commentary on Mark. It begins with breadcrumbs. And Jesus questioning, are you sure those crumbs are for you? Are you sure this kingdom is for you, woman? My disciples here beg to differ. Is God's blessing for you? All the way to the end. Where the bread is being shared openly. And who's serving the bread? The disciples. There's no irony. There's no coincidence to the irony. The disciples are serving the bread. Symbolizing the physical and spiritual sustenance to sinful men and women. In our movie, at the start today, we read a quote. And that quote from that homeless man He said, sometimes you feel like you're invincible to people. Like you can say hello to somebody and they'll just walk right by like you don't even exist. What are we going to make of this study? What are we going to make of these themes and these topics that we've addressed? I'm asking the question, where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? How do we walk away from this study knowing something different about God, about the kingdom of Jesus Christ that we need to do differently as a community, as a a church family? Where do we go from here? I have a few thoughts uh, in closing. First, I want to make mention of the fact that the kingdom of God is for all people, even for those we pretend not to see. I don't know who you don't, don't pretend to see. I don't know if it's homeless that you pretend not to see. I don't know if it's um, immigrants that you pretend not to see. I don't know if it's prostitutes or drug dealers or teenagers. or I don't know the people group that you pretend not to see. I know you have one. I know you have probably more than one. I know I have more than one that I pretend not to see. Israel fell in this way. Israel hoarded the kingdom for herself. And in so doing, she squandered it. She hoarded the kingdom for herself. She took God's blessing and said, it's mine and it's only mine and it's for me and it's not for anyone else. She hoarded the kingdom of God for herself and squandered it, squelched it, crushed it. So much so that Jesus had to come to be the true Israel, to show the way back to God. And I'm asking us the question, have we learned from Israel's mistake? Are we hoarding God's kingdom for ourselves? Are we hoarding it for ourselves? This is easy to do. It is easy to come on Sunday, to come on Wednesday, and to and that's it. 
and to disassociate from the world, to disassociate from the community, to disassociate from our neighbors, to disassociate from those people we pretend not to see, and just ignore and neglect and overlook, or worse, to be racist and prejudiced and bigoted. Folks, God's kingdom is not just for you. Jesus Christ has come opening up the kingdom of God for people of all tongues, tribes, and nations. And so, in conclusion, I ask the question, how can we better share God's kingdom with others? How can we better share God's kingdom with others? And this is the final question I want to ask, and I've got, I've got five responses to this. There are many responses to this. I've got five very practical responses to this that I want to suggest to all of us today. The first is this. We've been talking about this for a month. We're doing a work day on Saturday. Now, I know for those of you that maybe are not signed up yet, it's, it's going to be late notice. But I also know that Camp Allendale serves neglected and abused children. And there are missionaries. And we love and support them. And it would, be, it would be hoarding the kingdom of God for us just to send them money. It would be hoarding the kingdom of God for us just to write them a check and assume we've done our duty. And so I ask you to join me on Saturday. To join Pastor Doug and the youth, many of whom are stepping up to the plate. I'm excited about that. And I'm asking you to, to join us in helping and serving that, that camp. You can talk to me if you'd like to attend. Secondly, how about a counselor at Camp Allendale? We've set aside August 11 to 15 as a strategic week in which we want to take people from coast up there. I know that's a lot to ask. Many of you are working, and taking a week off is difficult, extremely difficult. But you know what? When you do... You are sharing the kingdom of God. You are making the most precious time of your vacation that you could ever make. And so we, we throw this out to our church family and say, consider this. The counselor training is coming up soon. You can talk to me about that as well or visit their website. How about thirdly, Kathy's house. I commend Bonnie Livingston and the women's team for adopting this ministry. The women's ministry of Coast are beginning to grab hold of this organization in San Juan, a women's shelter for battered and abused women. And they're beginning to reach out and touch this shelter by serving them in various ways. You can join in on their efforts. Fourthly, uh, the Orange County Rescue Mission. It's a great organization. Uh, Jim Palmer is a Christian man. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a Christian organization who reaches out to homeless and hurting people throughout Orange County. And you can visit their website and consider how you can share the kingdom of God with others in those contexts. Last, but certainly not least, this is a, something we're going to be shooting for in the, in the distant future. But on November 16, 2008, uh, we're calling it Faith in Action Sunday. Many churches around the nation are actually doing this. Not on, on separate dates, but nevertheless, they're taking up this challenge. And the challenge is this. That's a Sunday, November 16th. It's the Sunday before our Thanksgiving uh, praise service and the Sunday before our, our Thanksgiving feast. So it's a really neat time of year for us as a church family. That Sunday, we're not coming to church. We are not going to have a service at Coast Bible Church on Sunday, November 16th. Because on that Sunday, every single one of us are going to go out into this community and we're going to love them 
and serve them and meet their needs. We're going to identify three, four, maybe five opportunities. Bonnie is already getting Kathy's house lined up. We're going to identify a number of opportunities for you to choose from. And we're going to make church on Sunday, November 16th, about serving this community and sharing the kingdom of God in a new and fresh and vibrant way. And may I, may I just suggest that that next Sunday's Thanksgiving praise service is probably going to be the best one we've ever had. Amen? Amen. Folks, let us not hoard the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is for us to share, especially with those that we pretend not to see. Let's close in prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, Lord, we confess. We confess the times in which we hoard Your blessing for us and us alone. For our family and our family alone. We confess that often we are like Israel was. Pretending not to see needs around us. Neglecting people groups because of racism or prejudice or bigotry. And Father, we, we confess, as a, as a corporate body, we confess that to You. If, if we are an heir, Father, we pray for your, for your forgiveness. We repent of that sin. We ask for Your restoration. Father, I pray that this church would become a church that shares God's kingdom. That we would continue to move in the direction of not hoarding, but sharing, including others, in the precious, precious message of Your Kingdom, which begins by faith in Your Son. But Father, may we show them the way. May we not just teach them the way. May we show them with our hands and with our feet that we love and serve and desire to reach them. And then may when they ask questions of us, may we be prepared to share with them not only physical sustenance, but the spiritual, eternal sustenance that comes when we believe in Your Son, Jesus Christ, and become a child of the Kingdom of God. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.